This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast. And PK, soon we're going to be joined by Laura Tingle from 7.30 to talk about some really big political themes this week. Leadership, integrity, trust and judgment. Yeah, all the light stuff, Fran. Um, Now, usually this week we'd still be talking very heavily about the federal budget, or the big budget sell, which happens after, of course, the budget is officially announced. Um, but by the standards of modern budgets, I mean, I think it's fair to say they often you know, don't get the kind of traction that perhaps the government would like them to get, that this one has really disappeared in the news cycle. And there's some good reasons for that, isn't there? Yeah, that's why we talk about the dead cat balance system. That's just like a, a dead cat. But um, look, I suppose, you know, give or take some argy-bargy around tax cuts, it really hasn't lived on much. But it, it is interesting uh, that I, th- I mean, I think it's interesting, PK, given that we saw this government just last week post the biggest budget deficit in our lifetimes, and nobody much seems to blink an eye about it. And I think what that goes to show is that generally Australians accept that these pandemic times are exceptional and therefore we're generally trusting that our government is handling the response in the way it needs to be handled. And if that's an exceptionally large cash splash, well, they think, everyone seems to think, okay, whatever it takes is okay. And, that's, and that can happen because there seems to be a higher measure of trust Uh, of the government in the community at the moment. We know that because the polls have shown a lift in that trust uh, measurement. And why is that? I think it's because um, generally the the people of Australia think that our government, they look around the world and can see that our government has by and large handled this pandemic well so far. So that's generally lifted the trust. We've talked about this over the the months, you know, the national, forming the national cabinet with the federal and state and territory leaders that seemed to be a good mechanism, took a lot of the political game playing uh, out of the management of this pandemic for a long, long time. It's those sorts of measures that I think have built that trust and the government's, you know, copying some kind of dividend for that, really. Yeah, they are getting a, a sort of bounce from the trust. You're right. And I think there's a view that we're in a pretty full scale crisis, right? And the recession we're in, the health emergency we're in means that People expect the budget to to do lots of things for them and look after them, and that of course you're going to go into debt and deficit. Mm. And those, it's completely neutralised all of those traditional political fights. And that's, that's which was which was good, a fight always led by coalition governments. Funnily enough, and now here you go, it's the coalition government posting the biggest debt and deficit. So it's kind of like strange times. It is. Now, we're going to talk about tax cuts and the political debate around, you know, the class war debate almost that's developing in federal politics with our guest Laura Tingle pretty soon. But the the bigger news out there really is pressure on two premiers in Australia, the, the two premiers of the largest states, a tale of two cities in many ways. This is New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, we know that they've They've survived no confidence motions against them. Very different issues, to be clear. But Gladys Berejiklian and Dan Andrews, I think, are the two of the most identifiable, important political figures of 2020. And both of them are under incredible amounts of pressure. Now, we're recording this on a Thursday morning. Gladys Berejiklian is still the Premier. When you listen, I'm not sure, right? Because (laughs) Daryl Maguire, the man at the centre 
of this sort of corruption inquiry who she's revealed was her partner for five years, was her, you know, close um, partner, which she didn't reveal at the time, was a secret relationship. He's going to be giving testimony all day. So I just want to put that caveat there. Uh, We don't know what will happen, but I do think the problems we've seen um, with the leadership at the top are really dominating national politics Mm. because this year is so different. Yeah, of course, we're looking at our federal government, but state governments, I think this is key in this, have become so much more evident and important in our lives. I know as a Victorian, let's get into this. Uh, our government, the Dan Andrews government, is key. Everything is about what this government is well, that, doing because it is a- about my life. That's right. I mean, it's the juxtaposition. You, you, any of these stories that we're going to talk about now, these vote of no confidence motions against premiers of New South Wales or Victoria would be news at any time. But at this junction, it's like you say, PK, at this junction, Dan Andrews is pivotal in the lives of Victorians. He stands up every single day for an hour, sometimes more, talking to you all about, you know, the pandemic and the management of the pandemic. He's front and centre in your lives. And the same for Gladys Berejiklian. She is really seen by all to have been textbook in her handling of this pandemic. So the pandemic has lifted these two leaders to national prominence and to a significant uh, symbolic prominence within their states too. So at this point for them to get embroiled in, in some kind of, you know, no confidence motions or accountability issues and, and, and scandals is, um, you know, just, just turbocharges those stories. Tell us, talk us through what's happened in Victoria this week. The Victorian story is really interesting. The Andrews government just hasn't reached the milestone it needed to to reach, and this has really changed the debate. We now know that the 14-day case average is 10.1%. Uh, there is a fresh cluster in the regional town of Shepparton uh, spread by a permitted worker who stopped there in violation of restrictions, which is really disappointing. Uh, the most restrictive lockdown measures were due to be eased on October the 26th, but that was all providing that the daily caseload is five or fewer. But Victoria hasn't reached that, so we are now having a big stoush, really, at a federal versus state level about, you know, move on, say the feds. And it's been a really strong message. Now, the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, says the state looks unlikely to meet its own targets and should start to reopen anyway. To their credit, they've reached the national standard, the epidemiological standard set by the Chief Medical Officer of Australia, and that gives them the chance to follow the pathway which New South Wales has said. I I would note New South Wales was able to operate at a greater than 10 case rolling average for 24 days. So that's Greg Hunt. We have Josh Frydenberg, as you know, Fran, putting enormous amounts of pressure on the the Andrews government to kind of really open up on Sunday when uh, Dan Andrews makes this announcement. To be clear, Dan Andrews has already now said that, uh, you know, they're going to pivot from this strategy. This has been clear all week. They five know is the new 10, zero is the new five. I love that's, that. That's pretty much what he said, right? But the federal government, it's heaping pressure because obviously it's about what that reopening looks like. And what's key in terms of the push from the federal government is business, 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 getting the economy opening again. Uh, whereas it looks... We don't know till it'll be announced and things can change quickly that the state government is looking more at the social stuff because mm. there's so much social isolation. The federal government's been, you know, I think politically uh, pretty clever in trying to push this message and it's it's based on some real, real facts. This is in relation to mental health, right? For instance, Beyond Blue, calls to Beyond Blue are 77% higher than the rest of the country in 
Victoria. That's incredible, right? Now, I'm not surprised by that because I live here and I hang out with Melburnians and I know what's going on in their minds and it ain't pretty a lot of the time. There is a lot of stress going on. So I'm not surprised at all by that. But the federal government is using that to say, open up, open up. And it's becoming a political stoush and it's it's not looking pretty, Fran. No. And then, of course, he faced that pressure of that no confidence motion because he's also been enduring this inquiry, which he set up into the hotel quarantine. And there's been public service falling over like nine pins, but the Premier still stands and, and the opposition are uncranky about that. But um, so, PK, that's the Victorian story. In New South Wales, it's as you, as you said, it's the story of what's been going on in ICAC, the Anti-Corruption Commission, with the Premier Gladys Berejiklian. Now, this revelation from the Premier that she had been in a personal, close personal relationship, that's the quote, with the former Liberal MP Daryl Maguire for five years up until August this year, was jaw-dropping for a number of reasons. The Premier of New South Wales is a famously private person and she's a famously cautious person. She tells us all the time she's risk averse. Here she was revealing, being forced to reveal publicly, she'd had a romantic relationship with a colleague that nobody knew about for five years and not just any colleague but the one that she'd had to sack back in 2018 because of allegations of a cash for visa scheme and uh, this this Liberal MP Daryl Maguire uh, making personal profit from his parliamentary duties. That was back in 2018 when she sacked him but we now know that Gladys Berejiklian continued her involvement with Daryl Maguire on some level until August this year when she realised ICAC was mounting this new further investigation. I mean that was gobsmacking and the admission immediately led to feverish speculation the Premier would have to quit. There were actual calls from the opposition for her to quit which culminated in this vote of no confidence this week. Gladys Berejiklian has withstood all that. She's staying put. She insists she's done nothing wrong. She'd broke no rules and she never would. And for now, her senior colleagues are standing by her. You know, Transport Minister and friend Andrew Constance told me this week, um, PK, Glad's staying put. She's too good to lose. Look, too good to lose is a really interesting um, way of framing it. And if you look at Gladys Berejiklian and her political record and uh, the way that she's handled issues, it was only a couple of weeks ago, Fran, that the Nationals were trying to quit the coalition and she stared them down. She stared John Barillaro down, remember, and that was quite remarkable. That was, yeah. Right? So that, that I just think New South Wales politics, I just want to lose, leave the federal sphere, move to Sydney and just <laughs> live my, like I just, it's so fascinating to watch. I mean, it makes us look boring in Victoria. We're just, you know, dealing with this crisis. But um, I... I just think that so much of of her reputation is built on this, you know, hardworking, ethnic background um, woman who just doesn't suffer fools. And all of the sudden, all of that has crumbled Mm. through this revelation. Not that she was suffering a fool, but she was suffering a crook, as it turns out, because he's been before ICAC this week admitting, conceding that what he did was illegal, what he did was crook anyway, you know, that he improperly profited. Uh, You know, it's just the worst possible scenario for Gladys Berejiklian to be trapped in or to have put herself in. Uh, that's right. And it's not just because it's a personal relationship and, and you know, everyone's so nasty because they're talking about her romance. That is a trick so that we don't scrutinise. The truth is it's about what he tried to do and whether she should have put a hand up and reported it. She says she didn't notice anything worth reporting. She was essentially duped. But that's at the centre of the questions here. Let's bring in our guest. Let's do it. <laughs> 
Our guest, Laura Tingle, the chief political correspondent for 7.30, is here. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Laura, we're going to be talking budget in a moment because yeah. I know you were there through every second of that lockdown, but um, it seems like we're the only ones talking about the budget at the moment, really. We're so old-fashioned of us. It's so, a thing. So last week. It's a thing. But can I get your views first on the New South Wales ICAC investigation and the position of the Premier, Gladys Berejiklian? It's what you call a bombshell, no doubt, what we heard from her this week. doesn't mean she's necessarily guilty of any wrongdoing just because a partner might have been... We don't know. ICAC's going to look at all of that and there's more to run on this. But do you think she can withstand this pressure, survive this pressure? Uh, Well, uh, it's hard to make that call given that there are still uh, hearings going on um, as we speak um, and God God knows what else is going to come up. But my take on it is uh, that she, she hasn't been found to have done anything wrong. The worst that she seems to have said is, I don't want to know about that. I don't want to hear this. Yeah, I don't want to hear this. Um... Well, you know, that might not be enough, but, you know, and, and then there was in the meeting in Wagga with, with, the, with the publicans and stuff, which is still a bit unclear. I'm, I'm, I sort of, my, my sort of sense is that on the sort of morality questions or the right and wrong questions, the jury has to still be out on that. Politically, though, of course, as we all know, it runs at a completely different race. Now, we saw all of those people anonymously quoted saying that she was gone for all money when it first broke. The moderates have come in very firmly behind her, as has the Prime Minister. As um, has the New South Wales Treasurer, who's a conservative and who, yep. you know, very, yeah. obviously a leadership contender, but he was very strong behind her. Very strong. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's, it's more just that sense of whether there's sort of some inevitability push uh, around um, there having to be a change. Now, the problems for the New South Wales government about that is that there isn't a really, really strong contender, I don't think, to to replace her, uh, particularly um, even Do- Dominic Peritek would be the, the strongest, I think, but it, it would still be a really big problem. Um, and uh, one thing you'd have to say, both in her handling of the Barilaro matter and this one, she's shown herself to be made of very steely stuff. Um, I, I mm. don't, don't know whether a lot of male politicians would have buckled by now under the pressure. Yes, yeah, she has. And that's the thing, right? She's also done a very good job of managing COVID-19 in New South Wales, balancing what have become really strong competing interests, which is, you know, economy, jobs, keeping things running and actually keeping everyone safe. Mm. Good contact tracing. Now, of course, the department's doing a lot of the work. People will text, tweet, whatever things they do, saying, hang on a minute, other other people are doing this work. But you do need good management Oh, yeah. As and, well. and if you talk to the health minister there, Brett Hazard, he'll tell you that Gladys Berejiklian in those first few months went to every single meeting with the, with the health officials. And in the end, no one in the room doubted she didn't know every bit as much about this disease and the contact tracing and all those protocols as they did. He said she was extraordinary. Well, there's that. And it's also just the way she's handled, you know, the the sort of very, the sort of matter of factness, if if you like. I mean, obviously, Daniel Andrews, everybody's saying he's done 100 or 115 Mm. or whatever it is now, um, press conferences, and he's sort of been out there as well. But she has really delivered that great sense of authority and calm and, no, this is what we're doing, this is what we're we're up to. And empathy, I think. And empathy. And it's, you know, I mean, yes, we all, you know, Ruby Princess, blah, blah, but considering we're dealing with something that none of us understand uh, and the fact that most people in New South Wales don't feel like they've been badly done out of, um, you know, there's not the resentment that there is in Victoria about lockdowns and things, that does give her a, 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 it reflects on her leadership, I think.
in a good and way. The other, and the other, and on a good way, that's right. Mm. But ultimately, obviously, you need to be you need to be clean, right, as mm. a political leader. And if you're sure. seen to be linked at all to any of these corruption issues, yeah. it becomes untenable for your leadership. Yeah. Let's move to Victoria because we've got now two very significant premiers that I think are the leading sort of uh, leaders of our times who are under pressure. Daniel Andrews for very different reasons, but still a lot of pressure and I think a, a change in mood in Victoria, a lot of anger towards the way he's he's managed the the uh, pandemic. Now, the head of his department went this week. This is Chris Eccles. He resigned on Monday. There's been a lot of discussion about should Dan Andrews go too, but it, it goes back to if you've got kind of a really, you know, a leader that's that's managing a crisis, Laura, should we be rolling leaders during this time? There's another sort of dimension to this, isn't there? We're in a crisis at the moment. We are in a crisis and, you know, it depends, you know, it used to be the case, and this is very old-fashioned on me, that if something went wrong, a minister would, would be held responsible and would have to stand down. Now, that's fine. What year BCE was that? <laughs> <laughs> it was certainly BC before COVID, um, but, uh, but that, that, that has long since gone. But the question here is, uh, you know, why did Chris Eccles go? Uh, well, apparently there was a contradiction of evidence. We still have to hear the final evidence of the inquiry into what happened with um, hotel quarantine. It's still not clear to me that, uh, you know, that there's any evidence that Dan Andrews was involved in the decision about uh, security guards or wasn't involved. Uh in the meantime, we need somebody to be running the joint down there because they've had to completely transform their systems, which obviously weren't working. Now, whether he was responsible for the fact the systems weren't working in the first place is another question, of yeah, course. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? It's really murky, as everything is in this time of this pandemic. You know, we can't work out how this virus works and the politics around it too is getting sort of muddled. Mm. And as you say, with, with Dan Andrews there, it's, it's unclear what happened there in the bureaucracy and the hotel quarantine. All we know is it mucked up. We've eventually got closer to knowing what happened with Ruby Princess, but still, whose fault was it? It's mm. unclear. Um, but with going back to that point PK was making earlier about Gladys Berejiklian, I spoke to Andrew Constance, who's a transport minister this week. Um, he was standing very strongly behind her. She's done nothing wrong. And, you know, again, uh, she has nothing to answer for in terms of, uh, you know, having to resign or anything of the like. She's, she's staying put. That's what the community wanted to do. She's too good to lose. And uh, New South Wales is going to continue to get through this pandemic and recession. It's just back to that point, she's too good to lose. And the same goes with Dan Andrews. It's at this time you can't afford to, to lose these leaders. Well, is this I, the new test of accountability? Well, I don't know if it's a new test of accountability, but I suppose it highlights the thing that we were talking about at the beginning, which is that uh, I think the view of... Um, uh, the New South Wales Premier is still that she's too good to lose, whereas I suspect the view of Dan Andrews, which, you know, was very firmly behind him. I mean, all those polls show that even when he was sort of being, um, you know, absolutely mauled by some sections of the media, uh, which he continues to be, most Victorians were very firmly behind how he was handling mm. things. But if there's that growing resentment, that, that sort of sense that people don't really sort of get the strategy anymore, that makes him a little bit more dispensable. Yeah. Look, I want to change the topic to the federal sphere uh, and the budget. Now, of course, this is, you know, the budget sell week. We've got the PM in Queensland. We've got the Treasurer around, you know, selling the budget that they only delivered last week. And now we're having, it feels to me, a conversation we've had before... <laughs> 
not it doesn't feel. I know we've had you, the conversation. You're saying we're going before. around in circles, or I'm saying that I'm um, suffering deja vu, but that's okay. In relation to tax cuts, stage three tax cuts for higher income earners, whether you know what Labor will take to the next election, which could be next year, and the Prime Minister raising this kind of class war rhetoric language again. How do you read it, Laura Tingle? Because clearly the economic circumstances when these stage three tax cuts are going to be delivered, we, we just don't know what the world's going to look like then, do we? Well, I mean, I, the stage three tax cuts are a bit like the economic forecasts for a vaccine and everything else. I mean... You know, pick a number. I think I called it the pin the tail on the donkey aspect of the uh, budget uh, in the lockup because they don't matter. I mean, the only thing that matters out of the budget is the next six months. I mean, there's going to be another budget before the election uh, for starters. Another big budget probably. Another big budget where they can do correcting things. The big question for this budget was what they were going to do to manage what is still a huge fiscal cliff coming up because of the withdrawal of JobSeeker, uh, the coronavirus supplement, the winding back of JobKeeper, uh, the end of all these other arrangements which aren't necessarily related to government, like uh, uh, bank holidays and things like that. Now, we're getting some positive see, as a sort of a signs since the budget, consumer confidence numbers, which are looking really good, some figures out of the Bankers Association saying almost half of bank, of bank customers who'd asked for deferrals back paying their uh, their loan. So, and, and, and the polls show people think they're going to be better off from this budget. Yeah. So all of those signs are really good. But, you know, I'm, I'm still to be, you know, I, I hope that they are right, that these measures will actually lead to uh, people putting on subsidised employees and going out and investing. Now, I think there was some talk about Woolworths have withdrawn from the job maker di- uh, the hiring, the hiring subsidy yeah. scheme. Um, I haven't I, seen yeah, that. I think somebody mentioned that to me this morning. They need the big retailers more than anything else to be prepared to take on all these extra workers. And whatever your business is, you're only going to take on extra workers if you've got extra demand. And it's still not clear to me that we're going to get that surge in demand that will be enough to drive things in the next six months, in which time we're going to be having to realign things all over again by the time of the next budget, and certainly that's long before we get to discussions about tax cuts. Yeah, and yet here we are in a discussion about tax cuts that, as you say, are like pin the tail on the donkey. They're like three years away, if ever. And yet Labor is being forced into a position to say whether it's going to support them. We've got the Prime Minister up in Queensland because there's an election up there spending a, a about a week up there, I think, um, I noticed that he was really having a crack at Labor over their obfuscation over the support or not for the tax three. Mm. He said, um, you know, Albo's just reheating what Shorten took the last election and, and went back off into a, a, a rave about so-called retirees tax and things mm. like that. I felt like I've been sort of jettisoned back in time <laughs> to 2016. What is going on? And is, are we in danger of lapsing into this because next year's shaping up as an election year already? I can't believe that. Yeah, well, next year is shaping up as an election year. And I think probably the, the stuff about tax cuts, when you think about it, is, you know, I mean, it's fascinating a week after the budget that the government wants to talk about Labor, really, isn't yeah. it? Um, mm. But um, I think it does reflect the fact that uh, the government senses there is now weakness in Anthony Albanese's position. And I don't mean in the sense of he's about to be toppled, you know, in yet another nightmarish, you know, <laughs> please spare us leadership coup. But, but the sense is that Labor hasn't been able to um, find the oxygen within the uh, the sort of confines of the pandemic to actually sort of get out there and make a, make a mark, you know, and um, I thought 
uh, the, the fact that uh, Anthony Albanese still felt on the re- night of the budget reply that he had to tell, as they say, his log cabin story about where he came from, yeah. you know, shows that he sort of isn't really identified. People don't know him. Mm. Um, and um, somebody made the observation to me uh, that their kid had said about um, Albo that he was just like Skirmo without the baseball cap. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, you know the, your average ochre bloke. And that's fine if you're already the Prime Minister. You can sort of get away with that. But if you're trying to be the Prime Minister, you've got to look like a Prime Minister. And I think there is a really big flaw and problem there for, for uh, Anthony Albanese there. Yeah, Yeah. there is. And look, today, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday, we've got the leaked talking points from the government. I'm surprised you're with us, Laura. I thought you'd be still reading those 11 pages of talking points. Uh, Look, but the thing about the talking points, I mean, you know, it's so embarrassing when they're sent out to the media. Hang on, PK, maybe everyone doesn't know what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the fact that what all of us... What are the talking us, points of what we're talking about, Frank? Yeah, exactly, that all of us this morning, it was so fabulous, checked our emails and there was the, the talking points from the Prime Minister's office to all, to everybody, which are the talking points that are meant to go to Liberal MPs for the day. And these happen every day. We don't get them every day, sadly. Hmm. Um, but today we got them all in all their glory. And, oh, what, a, what, 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 you know, edifying things they always are. They're so full of information, persuasion, stuff that you haven't heard before, <laughs> no cliches in sight. Oh, seriously, it's just depressing. If asked, <laughs> does the budget... What, if asked, the budget doesn't do enough for women, what should we say, Laura? <laughs> and on it goes. It's like that. Oh, it makes me feel tired. <laughs> Poor Laura. Poor Laura. We've just taken, taken her down a, a road. She doesn't want to think about the talking points talking again. Points, but the talking no. points do, though, you know, the way they answer questions and try and stay on message is always interesting to yeah. see. Oh, and, know, the yeah, way. And, 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 and what they feel vulnerable on. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's basically one of those moments which you don't get very often and it's like gold. Yeah, yeah. Just as, a, as an insight into what the government thinks, you know, its vulnerabilities are. And we know that they do think they have vulnerabilities and it'll be really interesting to see how they try to address some of them. Uh, Laura, I mean, job seeker, the unemployment benefit, that they're going to have to address that imminently, aren't they? The, there's so many people who are unemployed now. There's so much... Unknown, they, there's so much unknown about what will happen after December. They they can't drag their heels on these things. They can't. And there's there's some talk that um, they they've, they've basically just been waiting for today's, uh, as in Thursday's labour force numbers, to make uh, the decision about what they're going to do about the supplement. Um, now it might not be that they do it tomorrow, but that in a mechanical sense, if they want to get it done by Christmas, they've really got to make the decision in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And um, just in terms of, you know, priorities and, you know, they've got, um, they're very busy with the pandemic. That was actually the answer to one of these talking points, because if anything, uh, if this week has shown us anything, it's shown us that there is a need for a national integrity commission, I think. We've seen what's happened in ICAC, what it can deliver, what it can reveal, um, because it's there. And that's made everybody ask every federal cabinet minister, what about the National Integrity Commission? Scott Morrison promised one Mm. in the days after he was elected leader of the Liberal Party. We still haven't seen it. Now, what do the talking points say in relation to why they haven't yet delivered a federal ICAC, Fran? Well, that's a very good question. Laura? 
uh, now I feel like a government MP looking through it, but <laughs> their general position has been that they're very busy fighting the pandemic and, uh, you know, and they've got to keep their focus on that brackets. You know, we're good at that, so therefore you'll have to forgive us for the other one. And that is such a pathetic answer, isn't it? it? Is I mean, really, pathetic. governments have to do more than one thing at a time. Sure, this pandemic is huge and yeah. it's been all hands on deck, but seriously. Yeah. And, and they've got a few resources, I would have thought. They, they have a few resources and the... Um, and, and the, the federal ICAC that they've proposed is so completely pathetic that it probably wouldn't actually cu- uncover very much. I just have to say, while we're talking about ICAC, isn't it just still astonishing that people take bags of cash in their office when when they just they just must know they just must know that it's it's not going to end well. I know, <laughs> that image again of it's... did you receive bags of cash to your office, Mr. Maguire? Yes. Yes. Look, I mean, we mentioned before we're recording this on a Thursday and so much will happen during the day. We don't know what the, you know, the Premier's fate is, but we can tell you uh, something that has broken while we've been recording the podcast worth sharing with you, which I think gives you all the indications you need about where this might be going. Uh, Daryl Maguire has admitted helping a developer meet the Premier for a drop-in at Parliament House. The developer had been pressing for a meeting for months. Maguire says he can't recall any planning issues being raised in the meeting, but, you know, did the, the, clearly using the relationship for a drop-in, this is going to make it really hard for the Premier by the end of the day, I think. Uh-oh. Laura, thank you very much for joining us on The Party Room. It's been a very edifying episode, which is no reflection on my charming fellow panellists. <laughs> I wish I had uh, bags of cash from you, Laura, but I'm going to I'm gonna have to just, you know, accept my fate that I've got, I've got nothing at the end of this. See ya. <laughs> Bye. That's it for the party room this week. But we wanted to give you a heads up on an RN podcast we're most excited about right now. Yep, we told you before, so I hope you've had a listen. It's This Working Life, hosted by Lisa Leong. It's all about work and life, but mostly work. Yeah, well, we do a lot of work, don't we? So we, we should listen to immediately right after this podcast. From the quirky to the controversial, this is all the information you need about work and how to get yourself and your life into gear. Yeah, it's kind of the digital water cooler of work life, but without the annoying colleagues. And you can find this working life wherever you normally get your podcasts. You're not an annoying colleague, Fran. Thanks, Peter. See you, Fran. See you. My name's Steve Austin. I'm here with Matthew Wordsworth. Hello, Steve. Matt and I each week are doing a podcast, particularly for people in Queensland, called Matters of State, where we look at everything involving the politics of the pandemic. The campaign, the opposition, the hidden issues, the fun bits, the light bits, the heavy bits, the important bits. I love giving people a hard time, basically. (laughs) The Matters of State podcast. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. Go to ABC News Online, the ABC Listen app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.